0: All right, let's do a little. Uh, do a little game. I'd, I'd have prizes, like I'm going to ask if any of you know the answer to this uh, little trivia. I'd have, I have prizes. I, I would have prizes, except you know budget uh, considerations. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no prizes. Uh, so this is a, like name that movie. Okay, name that movie. Courtroom, Christmas, Chris Kringle. What is it? Yeah. Well, I can't hear you all at the same time. Okay. It's... A little tough miracle on thirty fourth street I can never remember which street it was on, but anyways um i'm pretty sure you know this one of those movies where i 'm pretty sure i 've never watched the entire thing straight through i mean how many anybody else like that like i I've, I've seen like clips of it like every Christmas since I can remember and um but but i i don't think i've ever seen it all the way through it 's not definitely no, nowhere near the list of my favorite movies at Christmas, but it is one of the we would concede it's one of the hol, you know the Christmas classics. Would you agree? It's one of the Christmas uh, classics. And, and so it depicts this whole courtroom scene. And of course, uh, Santa's vindicate, vindicated in the end for being who he is because of the U.S. Postal Service. And that's the way the whole thing is. And sorry for the spoiler. Um, but the reason why I raised that, that particular movie that is not one of my favorites um, is because we have in our passage today, we have this courtroom scene. Um, and and. It's, it's God bringing a charge in, in Micah chapter 6. Hopefully you've turned there already. God's bringing a charge of spiritual neglect against his own people. And the reality was his people were ignoring him. And they were living their own way. And when I say those two things, people ignoring God and living their own way, I, don't th- I think you're a smart enough crowd that I don't need to draw the line between that and where so many people live their lives today with respect to God. God is, is is being shut out, we would agree. God is being shut out of the public sphere. But of much more concern to us, something that's far more critical to us and important for us to talk about it, is that God is being shut out of the personal sphere. And that is to say, most people don't give any thought at all to God, let alone have faith, let alone really live for him. They're not even thinking about God. And frankly, can I say, not just because I'm a preacher, but because I see this in the world and I see the desperation of people, but that needs to change. People need to think more about God. No one agrees with that? I thought I would get an amen or two. People need to think more about God. People need the Lord in their life. So what's it going to take for people to get right with God? We can't really speak to those who are outside of these walls right now, but for those in the room, what's it going to take for some in this room to get right with God? I mean, whether you're a believer who's drifted in some way and allowed sin to take root again, or you're sitting here as an unbeliever, never having made a commitment to Christ, that's the question. What's it going to take for you to get right with God? For you to, and we're going to hear this in the passage, for you to be able to come before the Lord again. So let's um, read the passage. This is Micah chapter 6. I'll read this for you, uh, first eight verses, and um, it might not sound super familiar to you until we get to verse eight. Micah 6, one. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations the earth, of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh my people remember what Balak the king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the savings saving acts of the Lord Well, then the prophet speaks and says this in verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you. Oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? What's it going to take for me? Ask yourself that question. What's it going to take for me to get right with God? Well, let's work through this. Again, it's a courtroom scene. And let's start with this. He, God, has charged me with an offense. I'm the accused. Again, this picture of a legal proceeding, a court case against the people of God. We see the reading of the charges or the opening statement by the prosecutor in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. He's the prosecutor. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. The mountains are called upon to be witnesses. They're going to be called upon to testify on behalf of God that God indeed has been working in the lives of his people in a significant way. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord. Another word for the mountains is the enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. He's taking this to trial. He wants it to be heard by judge and jury. Now listen, this isn't some ancient history that we're looking at. God is bringing the same indictment against us. Every person stands there accused having to defend themselves. And note that the call comes for the people to actually respond to the accusation. This is the back and forth of the trial. God makes the accusation, and then he says in verse three, 3, oh O my people, what have I done to you? The offense here is that the people had chosen of their own accord to distance themselves from God, to disobey his word, to disobey his ways, and to actually go their own way apart from God. And God wonders aloud here if they've done this because they believe that somehow God has failed them. I'm done with God. I'm, I'm, I'm finished with falling, following in his ways. I'm going to go my own way from now on. God continues and he asks him again, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? And he appeals quite forcefully having asked these two very honest, heartfelt questions, answer me. Because he knows his case is airtight. And they need to respond to the charges that he's put in front of them. He knows categorically. He has not failed them in the least. Even though they've gone off as if to ignore him. And living as though God does not exist at all. So many of us... Even those of us who love Jesus, even those of us who have followed Jesus for decades and decades can get to this very same place with him. We can get to a place when life becomes more difficult and challenging or when the Lord is bringing his discipline into our lives. We can get to this place where we think we merit more from God than what we have. How come I have the life that I have? How come someone has more than me? How come their life is easier than my life? We believe that we merit more or better from him. And when he doesn't meet our standard of what we think we deserve, we push him to the side and we go off with our lives and we absent our life of God. In fact, we could go all the way down the road to saying, we're angry with God. Or at the very least, we're disappointed with God. It's hard to imagine... That there isn't a person here, again, followers of Christ, that there isn't a person here who at some point in your life hasn't been disappointed by by what God has allowed or ordained in your life. Can we be honest enough to say that? And that's what happened in Israel. That's what happens today. And for his part, God's still ready. This is the awesome part about this. There's so many awesome parts about this. But God's ready to have the conversation with you. He's ready to to put court in session for you to come and bring whatever you have and to have the conversation and make the final determination about whether or not God really has disappointed you. Whether or not there's any justification for you being angry with God in any way. He's willing to open the courtroom and hear your Defense, to hear what, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? God is saying. One of my favorite authors over the years, and I've quoted him before, is Philip Yancey. And he wrote a book actually called Disappointment with God. And in that, this is a lengthier quote, but in that he said this, you can say anything to God. Throw at him your grief and your anger and your doubt, your bitterness, your betrayal, your disappointment. He can absorb them all. As often as not, spiritual giants of the Bible are shown contending with God. They prefer to go away limping like Jacob rather than shut God out. In this respect, the Bible prefigures a tenet of modern psychology. You can't really deny your feelings or make them disappear, so you might as well express them. God can deal with every human response save one. He cannot abide the response I fall back on instinctively an attempt to ignore him or treat him as though he does not exist. Don't shut God out. Come before the Lord and have the conversation with him. He's inviting you into the courtroom to have that conversation. But come ready. Notice this next. But come ready. You know where this is going to go. Come ready to admit, I'm guilty. The facts are irrefutable. I mean, in his opening statement, God says this in verse 4, and he just lists out now some of the things, just a a very short list of the things that he did for Israel, but pretty impactful. Verse 4, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of slavery. Remember when you were slaves in Egypt? You had no freedom. You couldn't worship me the way you wanted to. There was no tabernacle. I mean, none of that was happening. And you had to do with the Egyptians. Remember when I rescued you? from that. I sent before you Moses. I sent this incredible leader. I sent Aaron and Miriam, this whole leadership team to lead you out. And he goes into a second example, verse five. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab devised? I don't really remember that, but if you want to know, Pastor Roger probably knows. He knows everything about the Old Testament. It's because he's older, so he'd know. <laughs> Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim, you really got to pronounce that right, to Gilgal. Then he says, I did all of this that you may know the righteous acts of God. In other words, throughout history, you've seen me work. And beyond just working on their behalf, he's been keeping his promises. He's been faithful to the covenant that he made with them. Something they weren't doing at all. A covenant's always two ways. Now listen, having said all of that, I want to frame something up again to make sure we're super clear about it. Because when we jump back into the Old Testament, it's very easy for us just to dismiss it as something that was just for Israel. That how does that even apply today? Today. It's a good time to say that as we look at this prophecy that was intended for Israel, that as it was being heard all those, about 2,800 years ago, as this was being heard in Israel, it was being heard by people in Israel who were believers and who were unbelievers. Sometimes we have this notion that somehow, in some way, all the Jewish people who were part of Israel were automatically saved. Just because a person was Jewish, just because they were living in Israel, did not automatically qualify them as true believers. One became a true believer in ancient Israel the same way someone becomes a true believer today, by faith, not by works, not by ethnicity, not by religious ritual and practice. Just because a person was Jewish and living in Israel did not automatically qualify them as a true believer any more than attending church or being a member of a church saves you today. Israel was and the church is made up of believers and unbelievers. So this prophecy or this sermon by Micah is being spoken to believers who truly love God and worship Him and identify with Him, but have gotten off track spiritually in some way. And we know that. Our lives can be like that. But this message is also being heard by ethnic Jews, citizens of Israel who did not believe at all, but who are nevertheless part of Israel. And again, that mirrors what may need to happen here this morning. Some need to hear this as a call to get back to your faith. To repent of sin that you've allowed to creep in and to get right with God again. And for others, some need to respond to God for the first time. Admit sin. Admit their alienation from God. Trust Christ and become a believer and follow him for the rest of your days. There were those in Israel that were guilty, and the facts against them were irrefutable. And there are those in this room who are guilty, all of us in fact, and the facts of that are irrefutable. We're all guilty of ignoring the amazing things that God has done and is doing. It's easy to become complacent about what the Lord is doing around us. It's easy To forget, it's easy to even get this sense of entitlement that somehow as a follower of Christ, I've been walking with him all these years and why hasn't my life been better than it is? Doesn't God see how faithful I'm being? And what we saw from Micah 5 last week, in fact, the last part of this statement from last week's message speaks to this. Remember, we looked at when I'm vulnerable and I'm facing crushing circumstances. Help appears in an unexpected place in an unlikely Savior who delivers an unshakable peace. And at the end of the day, whatever the circumstances of my life are, whatever's happened around me, however hard it might be, Within, within, God guarantees me an unshakable peace in the midst of it. And if we were to eliminate everything else that God has done, just that he gave me Christ and he reconciled me to himself and I have peace in my life, that's enough. That's awesome what God has done for me. So just as God was there for all Israel throughout all her history, protecting, leading, caring for, providing for, even disciplining Israel as a loving parent would, just as that was true for Israel, that's true for us today. He's there for us now, granting us all of these things and more. And the starting point for you and I to get right with God is the admission of guilt confessing that you're a sinner, responsible for the charges that God has brought against you, admitting that, Romans 3.23, all, all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Admit that you've sinned. Admit that you've fallen short. Now, once I do that, I'm also going to realize, notice this next, the sentence... Now, I've admitted my guilt. I'm standing condemned before God. The sentence carries a penalty I can't pay. I think about these court cases, these these heinous crimes that some people commit, and they get these consecutive sentences of life in prison and they're, they're condemned to serve, you know, like seven counts of this capital crime and they're serving seven consecutive life sentences. Well, you can't do that. It's impossible to ever be able to complete your sentence. That's the situation we find ourselves in. Unable, unable to pay the price. So the prophet asks on behalf of the people. Now he's speaking for them. They're trying to now to figure out how to get right with God. God's made his case. It's irrefutable. I'm going to admit my guilt. But now how can we make that right? So the prophet asks on their behalf. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. How could I ever get back into the presence of God? How can I make this right? Then offer some suggestions could i do this could i do this could i do this notice shall i come before him with birth, burnt offerings with calves a year old should i take like the the prize calf the best one i can find and bring that calf and offer that to the lord is that going to be enough and evidently in the person's mind that's not nearly enough verse 7 another idea will the lord be pleased with thousands of rams. Now you're getting into the realm of this is ridiculous. No one's going to bring thousands of rams just for their own sin. How about ten thousands? Not ten thousands of gallons or, or, or ten thousands of liters of oil. It's ten thousands of rivers of oil. Could I offer that? Evidently, that's not going to be enough. I mean, the whole time now, they're thinking of external religious practice as a way to appease God. And then they say, in the extreme, here's their third example. Here's another suggestion. What about, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This isn't just, you know, I'm going to give my kid over to, you know, like religious service. This is... This is in the context where the nations around them offer children as sacrifices. God, would it be enough for me to take my firstborn and put them on the altar? I don't need to go any further, do I? It's in the extreme. It's it's ridiculous. And, And the point is, as horrific as, as it is to even consider what that would be like, it's not enough. It's not gonna get it done, it's, it's not gonna pay the price for you. And there's this contrast coming, and what Mike is trying to help us see is a difference between external religion and internal faith. They're wondering at this point, what's the right approach? What's the right way to get back into a relationship with God and to worship Him? And I believe that everybody today is actually wondering that. Anybody who is giving any thought at all to God is wondering, at least in a small way, what's the right way to be in a relationship with God? And what most people in our culture do is they pull a little bit from here and a little bit from there, and they make something up themselves, and they create a designer religion that allows them to convince themselves that they're okay with a God that they've defined themselves. Does that sound right? That's what most people are doing today. And instead, we look to the Word of God, the revelation of God himself to us to tell us how to be in relationship with him. And the reality is that no amount of outward religious observance or ritual, which is what people always default to, is going to bridge the gap between me and God. Not outward religion, but inward faith evidenced in a changed life. That's what we have to put our hands around. That's the only thing that's going to bridge the gap between me and God. See, the penalty is, Romans 6.23, the penalty is the wages of sin is death. The first part of that is that when sin entered the world, humanity was condemned to physical death. Rather than living forever, we would now suffer the pain and the heartache and the separation that comes at our own physical death. But beyond that, the wages of sin is also what the Bible calls second death. Second death is more horrific than first death, than physical death. Second death is eternal separation from God. The awesome thing about life right now, even for people who don't believe in Jesus, the awesome thing about life right now is you get the benefit of God being in this world. You may not acknowledge it. You may not know it fully, but God is blessing every single human being on this planet right now. But at second death, that's over. And it's too unimaginably horrible to think about what second death is really like. But that's the condemnation that hangs over our head, that's the penalty we can't pay. And no one can overcome the sin debt that is owed to God. No one can offer anything to God that's enough. This is a life sentence with no possibility of parole for all eternity. But thankfully there's some awesome news. Notice this last point. I can be cleared of all charges. How amazing would that be? Knowing and having confessed that I'm guilty and knowing that the sentence is too much of a burden for me to carry, I can actually be cleared of all charges. Paul actually wrote in the rest of Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so for every defendant, the hope is acquittal. In fact, We want to be declared by the judge not guilty or better yet to have the trial stopped mid-trial and the charges to be entirely dismissed. Again, the prosecution here is God, and he now offers us a plea deal. If we would admit to the offense, if we would plead guilty, all charges will be stayed. And here's how Michael puts it. Verse 8, he has told you, oh man, what is good. He has told you, condemned one, guilty one, he's told you how to get out of this, how to live the right way. He's pointing out the path of righteousness. So you asks again, what does the Lord require of you? What's What's needed from you in order to make this plea deal happen? How or what do I have to do to be cleared of all charges? Now, before we get to what he says next, it's so important that we understand that we're not earning it by doing these things. We're not earning our release. We're not earning our salvation at all. You cannot earn your release. You cannot get out of this with good behavior. What we see here in verse 8 is the outflow of a life of initial and growing faith. It's always, listen, it's always faith first. And then the fruit of what God is doing in our life flows out from that. Faith first And then the fruit flows from that. So here's what Micah says. The three aspects of a life that has been freed of sin's obligations. Three aspects of a life that have been freed of sin's obligations. And we've talked a lot about our horizontal relationships and our vertical relationships. And we're going to see three of them here. We're going to add a third one to that. But write this down in your notes. First of all, the horizontal aspect is to do justice. If you're into the Hebrew words, the original language words, this is the Hebrew word mishpat. It's a very important word, mishpat. It deals with social responsibility. It deals with the care of others, especially those who live on the margins, the weak, the defenseless, and the vulnerable in our society. It is evidence when you care for people who are in this category, if you care about justice, this is evidence that you're right with God and that you, is that you have this heart of justice for others. Now I want to say this very carefully. If you have no heart of justice for others, if you do not care for those on the margins, and by care I mean an act of caring for them, if there is no heart for that, then it is very hard for you to claim that you understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. You cannot have a cold heart towards those on the margins and claim to love Jesus because he loved those on the margins so very much as is demonstrated over and over again in the Gospels. Here's a second aspect of a life that's been freed of sin's obligations. Not only the horizontal aspect to do justice, but the internal aspect is to love kindness or to love mercy. Again, this is a very important Hebrew word, chesed. It speaks to the heart of mercy that we're to have, the loving kindness that's to be true of us internally. the, The idea of covenant faithfulness and of loyalty and its loyalty God to us, us to God, and us to one another. It affects every aspect of our lives, but it has to be rooted internally in who we are. Do you love kindness? Do you love mercy? Are you a loyal, committed person to all of these relationships that we have one with another? Speaking of God, the psalmist said this in Psalm 89, verse 14. I think that verse is going to come up here. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And this speaks to both Mishpat, the justice of God, and Hesed, the loving kindness, the covenant faithfulness of God. And God has these things, but we need to embody these things as well. Here's the third aspect of a life that has been freed of sin's obligations. Obviously, the vertical aspect. That we are to walk humbly with our God. This speaks to what one commentator said is a careful walk with God. He drew that off of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Look carefully, Paul said. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but wise. Understanding what the will of the Lord is. Look carefully then how you walk. This is the recognition that you don't have what it takes to solve the sin problem yourself, that you need Jesus Christ and you need to humble yourself to walk in step with Christ every step, every moment, every day of your life. That journey starts at the foot of the cross when you come and surrender your life to him. And having received Christ as Savior, you then walk perfectly, carefully, wisely and step with Him throughout your life. It is the loss of all pride. And in a real sense, this third one, to, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God, this third one really precedes the other two. It's the first that must happen. To walk humbly means to come to the end of myself. And precedes the establishing or reestablishing of a relationship with God. To be humble is to admit that the severing of the relationship was my fault, not God's. It is to be humble and to say, not my way but yours be done. Now, Each of these three perfectly embody who Jesus Christ is was in his birth in his life in his message and in the sacrificial death that he demonstrated in in every possible way that he lived Jesus Christ did mercy loved kindness and walked humbly with his god and the reality is that i will be cleared of all charges You will be cleared of all charges if only you and I will entrust our lives fully to love and follow Jesus Christ. If we will humbly come before the Lord. And I hope we'll all do that this Christmas, into the new year, and until the day He returns. Come before the Lord. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Father, it's an awesome thing to think in very specific ways about you. To think about how you have been so just toward us. How you have been loving and kind toward us. So faithful, you've never failed us not once. And Father, how through your Son you demonstrated humility in a way that we could only aspire to ever live up to. So thank you for modeling what you want us to be. Thank you for empowering us to be those very same things. Thank you for the gracious offer to defend ourselves before you, to have the conversation. And then, Father, the amazing offer to drop all charges. Father, I pray for those in the room who are professing believers but who have allowed sin to creep in. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would be drawing deep conviction into hearts right now and that there would be throughout this room prayers of repentance being uttered of confession and of surrender and i pray also father for those in the room we're grateful that they're here at church but for whatever reason they have not yet given their life to christ There's no doubt, Father, that the church, any church gathering, has many people in it who have not yet given their life to Christ. What a risky and impossible way to live. And I pray that you would be pressing on their hearts and on their minds right now to end the charade. To end the nonsense, to finally, in this moment, surrender their life to Christ.